and welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program. You do know, because I tell you every program, that we come your way every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com, as well as uh, podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations. You folks are reposting our programs too and thank you for doing that yeah i didn't ask you to do that but i'm glad you are it helps to expand our our exposure as well we're also on youtube you'll be able to see this program and i hope that you will watch all of our programs that we're posting up on youtube as well this program is uh, one that you're going to enjoy i think because it's also part of the decade the 2020s the decade of perfect vision, where we're asking you to spend time going within, spending time being with yourself, finding the still, quiet, calm place where you can hear that still small voice, where you can focus on the things that are important to you. We hope that you will do that. And this program is going to help you do that as well. It'll also give you insight and intuition and guidance and inspiration and encouragement, all of the things that you might think, well, I, get, I can get that from my mom and my dad, my husband, my wife, my partner, my brothers, my si-. No, no, it's not the same. Because regardless of how much someone says, I love you and give you unconditionally this information, we all filter that information through our life's experiences but your inner voice doesn't do that it's pure so please take the time to do that during the decade you've got nine more years folks come on what's it gonna hurt what have you got to lose as they say our program today actually ties into this considerably with our guest and uh, we want to thank her for joining us here on the program We're going to be talking uh, about something that my mom used to uh, participate in, believe it or not. And uh, it's very interesting uh, that we're going to be talking about this. Uh, Of course, my mom was into uh, what they called Hatha Yoga on public television. She used to uh, watch Hatha Yoga. Uh, She also watched uh, Jack LaLanne. He wasn't doing yoga necessarily, but he was still fun to watch. He was... Uh, kind of fun to watch pull those boats with his teeth. That was very interesting as well, the late uh, Jack LaLanne. Our guest today, Wendy uh, Tyrdell, is with us. And I thank you so much for joining us on the program. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, am I correct all the way from, is it the UK or are you in New York? I'm in the UK. You're in the UK. Oh, my goodness. So I was just on New York time, but I'm in the UK. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. There you go. I thank you so much for being with us. And uh, uh, I, I just out of curiosity, are, are you just by chance happen, happening to be sitting in the lotus posture? I do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, folks. Um, we're going to talk about yoga. We're going to talk about yoga from a lot of different perspectives. I hope that you will stay with us. We're going to talk uh, with Wendy uh, Tisdell about uh, integrating yoga, uh, among other things. And she does have a website. We hope that you will uh, take the time to go there, find out more about her. Wendy Tisdell is our guest. WendyTisdell.com is the website. Uh, Bendy Wendy Birds Yoga and Words. That's what I see at the top of your website. I love the, uh, I love the way that that's put together. You are a yoga teacher, trainer with 40 plus years of experience. You're a writer specializing in uh, travel, yoga, philosophy, and the transformation of grief. Well, this program is about transformation too, Wendy. And uh, we want to talk a little bit of, uh, well, we're going to talk a lot about yoga. First of all, I know uh, that it derives from the Sanskrit root of, uh, of yoga. Uh, or, or yoke of, of a sort, if I'm not mistaken. I may be. Uh, I may not have the definition exactly right. Tell us from your perspective, right. your learning, where the word comes from, what it means, especially in the, con- in the context of, if I may, Bendy Wendy. 
Go ahead, Wendy. Oh, well, so sorry. What was the question? The question you has to do with your definition of yoga as it relates to Bendy Wendy. Oh, okay. So I don't know. Yoga is integration. You don't have to be Bendy to do, do yoga. I just so happen to be Bendy. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a coincidence, really. Um, when I first started yoga, yes, it, that was, it, it did seem to be about being. Um, bendy to a certain extent and I seem to be quite good at it and so on and so forth but that wasn't why I took up yoga that was coincidental why, I took why did up you take it up because I was deeply depressed I would I'd been to India um had a wonderful time in India but got hepatitis oh. came back really low I know depression is um, a side effect of hepatitis but um I wasn't used to depression. I wasn't used to having no energy. I wasn't used to feeling low at all. I was used to being, well, bouncy and nonstop active. Anyway, um, my brother said, uh, why don't you try yoga? And he took me along to this yoga class and um, I've never stopped. It was amazing. However, I say that I, I, it, it wasn't even the physical yoga that I started with. I actually started with pranayama, the breathing. And um, yeah, as I said, it turned out I was bendy and um, great, but not entirely necessary. You can, okay. it's really about the mind. Anyway, it changed my life. Mm -hmm. It was the pranayama, the breathing that changed me for, um, it was a friend's mother um, who taught me some very strong breathing exercises, actually. Then my brother took me along to the actual physical yoga classes. It was Iyengar yoga. And um, my friend's um, mother, who taught me these um, pranayama exercises, she then realized that we're well, not actually supposed to do pranayama until you've been doing the asanas, the, the actual physical yoga for a couple of years. But she saw me sort of shooting by up the hill on my bicycle and thought, well, it's a bit late, really. Because that pranayama, it was um, a game changer. And I've done it every day ever since. Well, now... You make it sound as though uh, yoga is good for depression, uh, as, as, as if it were, I don't know what, a cure, a treatment, a process, if you will. Um, and I had never really thought of it in that context. Can you share with us from your learning about it? Uh, mm. And again, we're talking yoga in a very general sense right now. Mm. Uh, how, how does it help with one's, uh, do I say, do, moods, emotions, uh, not just depression. It can help mm. sort of level one out a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. It's a great stabilizer. So, um, I mean, everybody's depression is going to be different anyway. Everybody's an individual, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for me, it was the lack of energy. That That's what I found depressing. I didn't recognize myself. I wasn't... I wasn't who I thought I was without um, my physical abilities. And what happened with the um, pranayama was that I discovered prana, prana being the Sanskrit word for energy. And this pranayama, you bring in the energy and um, it's there. It's, it's just there and you can help yourself to it anytime mm. you like. It's in this incredible gift available to us all. Um, now I know so much more, of course. I know that, um, yeah, I was very fortunate to to go in that direction. Had I been um, psychotic, for example, maybe the pranayama would not have um, been a good thing for me. Um, but the thing is, it's a great leveller. It stabilises wherever you are. So I now know that had I been hyper um very you know if, if one's overexcited then there's certain breathing exercises that would actually calm you down it's not necessarily a matter of just uh, absorbing as much prana as you can but it's it's um it's there now you you've mentioned your brother uh yeah. as what seems to me a rather integral part of this process uh, especially from the start from the beginnings from your beginnings of yoga yes was your brother into yoga and these, um, shall we call them back then, 
And now bear in mind, I had just graduated from high school in 1978 and gotten into yeah. broadcasting 41 years ago. So, so uh, yeah. this takes me way back. Uh, and I remember my mother uh, watching, the, as I mentioned earlier, the public television program, Hatha Yoga. And she mm. would be there in the living room doing her yoga and so forth. Uh, and we just kind of, as kids, not really understanding, we'd just leave her be, you know, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't know what was going on, but we knew whatever it was, she was having a good time and not to bother her. Mm. Um, but your brother was an integral, had an integral role in your introduction. Wh where was he at that time? Philosophically, oh, I guess I should say. He'd been to yeah, he'd been to India the year before me, and he'd mm -hmm. had um, different adventures to mine. But uh, we we were always very close. We're quite close in age. He was actually younger than me. But um, anyway, he wasn't he wasn't actually doing um, particularly yoga. But we we're all we were both interested in anything esoteric, anything a little bit um, or, or metaphysical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he. He um, found this yoga teacher, actually the very first class, remember he took me there on his moped and um, I think he'd already been to a few classes and, it, it, <laughs> and this teacher was doing something really quite um, dramatic, um, some pretty hardcore exercises. We arrived there and the class was cancelled that way. I was so disappointed because I, anyway, it's like my brother knew this is what I needed. I knew it's and yeah. Here we are uh, still doing But you have had some, uh, you say your brother went to India the year before, but you have yeah. had some very interesting and incredible and very challenging experiences uh, in what we'll call the Far East, India, Tibet, uh, even into China and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, tell us about your first visit to India. Uh, how much of what your brother shared with you uh, did you kind of take with you as, as having certain expectations or did he just kind of withhold that and say, hey, look, see for yourself? Uh, well, I don't, I really don't know. We were sort of very similar. So he, he didn't have to, um, he didn't really have to sell it to me, if you like. Um, ah. I just went and we both went overland Um it from you know from London and you know it's our separate times in our different ways not possible now Afghanistan of course was it was before the Russians came in so that was I, I was so happy that I went there went up and saw those big Buddhas at Banyan rode up there on a horse and it was just this sense of going to other other lands going beyond our very safe um, upbringing in the Thames Valley what about the culture shock between the UK and now you're you're in someone else's country speaking and, and it's somebody else's language mm. and they may not even speak English. Oh, well, in India, they all do. That's their unifying language. Ah. Um, yeah, that came later in Japan. Actually, for me, the culture shock was coming from India back to the UK. So oh. that was... That was, yeah, I, I was fine in India, no problem. I, this was like, oh, this is my spiritual home. This is where I belong. I was, yeah. it was like being liberated. Um, but then coming back to the UK and discovering everybody's minds were set on um, earning as much money as possible and you had to get into, all my friends were, you know, they'd all gone into their, not all of them, but most of them got into their proper jobs and um, they're already on the career ladder. And I was just, um, I don't know what I was doing. I, I was going from one weird job to another, actually, <laughs> quite enjoying it. But um, it wasn't really what my degree in English, English had prepared me for and certainly not what um, any careers advisors at school would have expected. Weed spraying in Wales and and sort of librarian for these very eccentric people I, uh, anyway it's uh, it, it's um i i eventually got into teaching english as a foreign language once i you know i did the yoga i did the breathing i did the yoga and then things switched on i did my tefl course i did the teaching english as a foreign language but that was just a passport to get out again to get out there again so i spent most of the 80s in um wherever back to India, Hong Kong, 
China, uh, mm -hmm. Tibet. So culture shock was my own society. That though, now for me, the challenge was once I met my husband in Hong Kong and getting pregnant and coming back to the UK, that for me has been the steep learning curve integrating back into the society, behaving like I was supposed to, not always, I don't know, walking through mountains on my own somewhere, which isn't really normal. Meditating yeah. in caves is not normal. Sleeping out, hitchhiking around Europe, whatever it was, that's how I lived. I was, um, I would work, but I was never really, but I did yoga wherever I was. So um, I wasn't a very conventional person. And now I'm kind of, yeah you know are you right are there, you are, because... are you more yeah are you more conventional today than you were yeah obviously than you were well absolutely once you have children you can't go hitchhiking and stuff like that you know, you, you have to behave yourself <laughs> oh and just then, put them in a rucksack and go <laughs> well, I did. I, I did. well they all had their own little rucksacks i mean i did travel with them quite a lot and we did take them places and still do. But uh, let me yeah. let me ask you about your uh, your journey across Tibet. I believe it was in 1988 that yeah. you actually walked across Tibet. Now, I know Tibet's not a large country, but not. still, there's a lot of land. And is it not very mountainous? Yeah. Well, you've got, it's a plateau as well. So where I walked was um, across western tibet between the himalayas so i was walking westwards so i had the himalayas to my left and the trans himalaya to the right and because you're so high up i mean where i was it was you know it's just wide plain if you look on the map it's yes it's all it's all mountains but when you get down on the ground um the Himalayas were kind of below me, so it was, uh, yeah, there would be Machu Puchari sticking up and uh, so on and so forth. But uh, it, I wasn't really, I'm gradually, I was following, um, I followed the Brahmaputra to its uh, source. Yeah, I was gradually going up, up, up. But because um, I was walking, I, you know, was developing the red cells to process the oxygen. So, yeah, it was a gradual process. So it was okay. How long did it take you? How long did it take you? Um, uh, just about a month mm -hmm. to get there. Yeah. To Kai so it was Mount Kailash. I was walking to the sacred, the sacred mountain. Tell us about that. That mountain. Mount Kailash. Mount Kailash. Um, the geomantic. Uh, nexus if you like very very powerful place and a traditional pilgrimage place for Hindus and uh, Buddhists and burn the uh, burn of the animistic religion of Tibet and it was hard to get to at that time, I mean, it was in the summer, so the um, it's the rainy season, and um, there there wasn't really a road, and all the rivers were um, very swollen. And I was just walking across the rivers. Um, one river, I just walked through it. And it actually was above my head, and I just carried on walking. And eventually, I my head popped up again above the water. That was okay. The the, the it wasn't so. Um, it wasn't so fast that river, but there was another river where I got pulled down and I was actually being dragged along the bottom of the river. That was a very strong one. Now, that was very scary. And I was just having the thought, I've got to get my rucksack off me and just let it go. And then I might live. Um, but it was also, I just hit a bend and um, thank goodness, um, hit the bank and was able to get out of there with my rucksack which was very heavy so anyway all of this I, I eventually got to Mount Kailash which was amazing it was um indescribable um very sublime and so beautiful it's um a pyramid with eternal snow on it mm. very magnetic place said to be the navel of the world it's a shame I I mean I have been back um I took my oldest daughter back there um 
in 2012 years later but um nowadays well of course right now goodness knows what with the pandemic but nowadays it's um they get millions of Chinese tourists going there every year and the little village at the foot of the mountain is a sprawling metropolis and um I'm I don't know if I really would like to go back now, although. It seems to me, and I'd love your, your perspective on this, it seems to me that no matter how repressive a, a government or a regime might be, you can't completely suppress one's spiritual growth and connection. Do you mm -hmm. have you found that to be the case in your travels, especially uh, in those areas of the world? Now you are you, you know I know that India is is both Hindu and Muslim, um, but there are also those who adhere to other philosophies and some that even sort of mix philosophies. But they have that that shall we say inner knowing and that that like what we were I was talking about at the beginning of the program. Uh, connected to their intuition, that inner voice and so forth. Uh, do you find that that's probably the case? It doesn't make any difference what this government or that government says about whether you can or can't practice. People sort of still have that intuitive awareness of their spiritual connectedness to one another, even if they don't have a particular philosophy to you know, they don't have a worship or what have you kind of thing? There's faith, very strong faith. The Tibetans, mm -hmm. for example, it's not, that they're, it's not that they're not allowed to practice. It's just that the, um, the whole power structure of the monasteries was broken down. So, uh, and as you know, so, so many of the lamas from Tibet had to flee to India and worldwide. So the um, the Tibetans themselves were left without their leaders, or if their leaders were there, then they. So the Panchen Lama, for example, was very much um, he sort of taken under the Chinese government's wing and made to toe the party line, if you like. But um, mm -hmm. the faith of the ordinary people is very, very stunning. Absolutely unshakable. And in other countries, yes, I mean, people have it. It's something that all people have, although some people might deny it and um, yeah. acknowledge it and maybe be too preoccupied with things of the world um, or too conditioned by their environment if they're not happening to live in a country which has a strong um, ethic of faith. Can I ask you about your philosophical upbringing? What were you raised in? Um, well, you know, Protestant, which is to say not much. Uh, we went to church occasionally. <laughs> that was fine. I'm, you know, I, you know, I was, I was baptized. Um, I could say I'm a Christian. I, I don't have a problem with Christianity at all. You know, it's, um, it was great. I. You know, Jesus, God, all fine by me. But I think I don't like personally. I, and this is just a personal thing. I, I feel, I don't want to restrict what I do and what I believe because it goes beyond. I mean, belief is subjective, and I just feel that anybody, be they Jesus or Muhammad or um, Krishna or Shiva or um, Mahavira originator of the Jains or Padmasambhava, this great Buddhist teacher, and all the rest of them, they're all, um, they're conductors, they're conductors of faith, conductors of something which is beyond words, which is beyond anything that we necessarily need to define, because the universe is big and wide. Mm. Words interpret, and they're very useful, but it's a shame that as human beings, we have to become so, so grounded. Um, well, no, we need to be grounded. That's not, not the right thing. But um, we can, we can lose ourselves in definitions, whereas actually, I'm, I've always from a small child been interested in the infinite. You said about my upbringing, my parents mm -hmm. were math teachers. 
and quite um, quite sort of um, abstract. And we were brought up in a cottage with no houses nearby and we didn't have a car. So we we're all a little bit sort of um, free, <laughs> if you like. My parents weren't um, particularly strict and I would ask questions about infinity from an early age. It always fascinated me. And my parents could answer me as best as they could because they were mathematicians and thought they knew about infinity. Whereas, to be quite honest, I didn't... No, I'm not going to say this on the radio, but anyway. <laughs> infinity came. Mm -hmm. Put it like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know... What, what I find fascinating is the diversity of cultures that are out there. I actually hate the word diversity. It's just, we've got an eclectic mix in the world and there are certain, so, certain societies and America is starting to turn into one of them, it seems like, that don't want to know about the other cultures, the other ways that people think and believe and pray and worship and and live their lives. And, um, you know, and I know that this is, I, I, and I try to put this, that in this context, that it's just the way it is, hmm. that Americans in particular are very individualistic when it comes to, let's say, solving a problem. Hmm. Uh, if you from the UK have a solution, I don't want to hear it because I'm an American and I'll figure it out, damn it instead of swallowing my pride and saying, you know, I might save a lot of time if I would just listen to Wendy and her ideas and what she has to say, it saved me a bunch of time. I'll give, I, I don't mind giving the woman credit because I don't, I, I don't care about credit. I just want to solve the problem. Um, you have been practicing yoga, which is a weird way of putting it because you know, they, you know, like a doctor practices. I'd rather have a doctor who's got it down rather than is practicing. Uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean? I want almost a, a virtuoso surgeon. Okay. Um, but you refer to integrated yoga and there are so many different kinds, even in our modern 21st century, we've got hot yoga, we've got goat yoga, and I don't know how many other new types of yoga there are. And I'm just curious from your perspective, is there a set of types of yoga that you have incorporated? Is there one type of yoga that you've incorporated? Tell us about if it, and maybe it doesn't matter, the structure, the formula, the form of yoga that, that you practice? So I believe that one must start with form. And now I'm saying this retrospectively. When I started, um, it was an Iyengar yoga class I went to, not the, the weird guy that my brother um, tried to take me to, who I, who I never actually met. Now, we found this, um, this other teacher in our town. He was doing the evening classes in Iyengar yoga. John Hawkins, his name was. Now, Iyengar yoga is very specific. You do everything in a certain way. And I think because I have such a, a boundless, free approach to things that I welcomed this structure. It was, it was great. And I could really conform to that. I found something that I was going to conform to. This, this was perfect for me. So I went on and I, wherever I was, whatever I did, I would be practicing my Iyengar yoga. When I was back in the UK, I go to back to John Hawkins. So this I kept up for many years. I went to I, w I went and studied with the Iyengar in India, in Pune, Maharashtra, quite a few times. Very very strict form, but it was very precise. This is how you do it. There is no deviation. But then I got pregnant, and. <laughs> That changed things because even just to do an Adam Wukashvanasana, the dog pose, I would be, I, I just have to race off to the toilet and throw up. And there was, um, there was nothing to, uh, in those days that I couldn't find anything. I was in Hong Kong, actually. I didn't know what I could do. How, how could I adapt my yoga practice? 
And that's when I started deviating and I started moving in spirals. And that retrospectively, I see, was the beginning of realising that actually all the yoga I'd done hitherto had been very male. It was yoga designed by a male from a male tradition. His teacher was Krishnamacharya, um, very male. And the female yoga is very different. When you're pregnant, you, you need physically to move in spirals. This was not something that anyone taught to me. It came from within. So anyway, eventually I wrote a book on pregnancy yoga. And, um, <laughs> and when, I, when we came back to the UK, I wanted to train as a yoga teacher rather than teaching English as a foreign language. Not so much call for it in the UK. Or there is, but anyway trained as a yoga well that was with the british wheel of yoga and well rather different from my yinga yoga because actually as long as it's safe and legal anything goes and this was i'd already had my um my introduction to something that was different from my yinga and i went with it and i have been trying I'll I'll try any. I haven't tried goat yoga, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm all for goat yoga. You know, if it makes people happy, if it makes people laugh, that's great. The best thing, you know, use your diaphragm, laugh, and um, you will not do yourself any harm. Anyway, um, so I suppose I've just developed. I've still got a, a strong Iyenga foundation, as I said. I think the structures are, are really good basis it was a very good way for me personally to start so many schools of yoga different people will find different schools appropriate for them and maybe at different times of their lives now I've developed my own approach which is I would say it's a combination of um, the the structure and the free so like a, a vine growing up a um, structure mm. we are talking with Wendy Teasdale and Teasdale, and she is Bendy Wendy's bird, uh, Bendy Wendy Birds, Young uh, Yoga and Words. Uh, you can go to her website. I need to do a little yoga in my mind here. Uh, you can go to her website, which is wendyteasdale.com. We will be linked to your website, Wendy, as well, so people can continue their evolutionary process as well. And we talk about that a lot here on this program in terms of encouraging people to try new things. We, we talk about how we set up this smorgasbord, this table with all kinds of different ideas and concepts and practices and steps. And I mean, the list goes on. And we don't ask people to go in and just feast away. No, we ask people to check things out. And if they resonate with someone, if they resonate with you, then please, by all means, take it, take it, enjoy it. And please come back to the table and see what else you might resonate with. Uh, that's why we make uh, your, your website, Wendy, in this case, available to our listeners so they can do just that. They can partake of what you have to offer. You actually have on your website some free downloads, uh, PDFs, I believe it is, of some things that you have written. Can you tell us a little bit about those uh, expressions of yourself? Well, I'm not even entirely sure what's there. My daughter, my oldest daughter um, recently redid my website, but I, I believe there's some downloads about um, animals, for example. So it is said in the commentary on the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is a medieval text on yoga and it's used in the teacher training courses of pretty well every school of yoga. I'm not sure about goat yoga. But anyway, in the commentary, it says there are as many yoga postures as there are animals. I read this quite a long time ago, and I've been going through different animals ever since. So um, doing the peacock last week. Uh, so I just go into an animal. I think on, on the website, I've probably got the cat and the camel and... Um, not sure what I must have a, a cobra, you know, some of the common postures which are named after animals. Mm -hmm. And I I think, you know, each animal has got they've got their own unique um, way of communicating with each other, with the universe, with their environment, how they're adapted and how we can learn from these animals. I've got two cats with me. Well, three cats with me right at the moment. And the way cats move, for example, with their 
that just the way their spines are, are made and that extra sort of bouncy substance they have between their vertebrae and this little thing in their brain which calibrates distance and velocity which is why this you know they always land on their feet and the the extra vertebrae um well they've only got three vertebrae in their pelvis and seven in the um lumbar for example you know so all these little things mm -hmm. about cats that make them yeah. what what they are and how we can yeah just embody the spirit of an animal so cat posture um, i'll make the point of the cat because actually that's what i needed not the dog when i was pregnant not the dog but the cat and mm -hmm. they don't do the cat in Nyinga yoga well they might do now because things have changed a little bit but probably not that is the posture for pregnancy your your spine is nice and neutral it takes the pressure off the pelvic floor you can do so many things in a cat it's yeah versatile and adorable actually <laughs> so well for me i know not everybody likes cats um i still love the dog pose but no i'm not pregnant but uh, anyway so I've, I've got um a few different topics up there and yeah, I've I've actually been writing about warrior poses this weekend. I was doing some workshops at the weekend on warriors and just looking at the mm -hmm. whole um how how yo the warrior poses in yoga, so relate it to the yoga, but um how actually the warrior poses historically they're not there in the Hatha Yoga lexicon, but of course in the Mahabharata, that great epic of India, that's all about war and so many um so many ideas come from warfare so many phrases and so many well you know from the art of war with by the chinese you know chinese um uh -huh. book no you uh what is it um give your enemy somewhere to go uh keep your friends close but your enemies closer phrases uh -huh. like that so anyway warfare and tactics and <laughs> So, so sorry, I'm rambling a bit now, but this is the sort of thing I write about. I think my writing's a bit more comprehensive, I hope. Well, we encourage people to go to your website. Again, uh, wendyteasdale.com. Uh, uh, we are, again, going to be linked to your website so people can uh, go there and uh, check out these particular items. Even pick up a, uh, a copy of uh, your books. You have a number of them. Uh, that uh, people can uh, investigate, and we encourage people to do just that. Uh, what I find very interesting is, in many instances, with a lot of folks that we've had on this program, uh, they, they're so prolific. You have yoga student handbook, Develop Your Knowledge of Yoga Principles. Uh, you also have uh, another one, Walking to the Mountain. Of course, this goes back to... Uh, uh, Asia 2000 or 98 and so forth. It's the story of your walk across Tibet. That's why I was asking you about that to the sacred mountain and um, you were fording rivers and all of this wonderful stuff. And, and you also have uh, yoga for pregnancy that you just mentioned. Um, transformation, transforming uh, um, yoga, integrating philosophy in yoga. Uh, I actually have another question for you in, in, in regards to your philosophy. How has the practice of yoga for you changed your philosophical outlook, but also your philosophical <laughs> inlook, <laughs> your inner life and your outer life? I think the practice of yoga has given shape to my inner life. So, as I said, from a small age, I was asking about infinity. I was always, I was terrified of it. It was my recurring dream when I was a child. Uh, I was just going through the universe and it was scary because when you're a child, everything is finite. You've got your parents, your brother, your sister, your cats, your house, your garden, your school. It's it's a known world. And it was when I went to India that I, that I really encountered 
the infinite, as it were, infinite possibilities. And it was, I don't feel that there's any difference. I feel there's a, a very strong connection between the inlook and the outlook. But what the yoga did was it gave me a voice and a language and a lexicon with which to express that. And I just love it that the body, you, you can do so many things with the body and it's expressing philosophy. Mm -hmm. Transformation well, with every breath. Mm. Tell us about your philosophy today. I mean, you've sort of alluded to it. Obviously, yoga is a central part of that, but uh, I'm curious as to what your philosophy is today. What uh, are your views uh, in terms of our uh, spirituality, our being spiritual or spirits, if you will, and and um, the force or I, I matter of fact, I read something just the other day where they think they have found this, not so much the source of consciousness, but where it resides, if you will. They haven't quite figured it out how it works, but they're pretty sure that it's that electromagnetic field over the brain that is the, our consciousness and that it's the neurons or the, the, the electrical charges that pulse up into that place, which sort of gives some credence to the concepts of the chakras and especially the crown chakra. Absolutely. Yeah. Which connects us with the cosmos. The chakras are a very interesting stepping stones to that. They are. Well, tell us about that. The medium. Yeah. 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 Um, so <laughs> the chakras have many sources, if you like, but it was in the uh, 15th, 16th century, this text, the Chakra Nirupana, in which um, we got the seven chakras, that, which have now become the definitive, if you like, set set of chakras that we accept today. And I, you know, I used to think, oh, you know, this new age stuff. And um, I know they talk about the chakras in some of the texts that we study for teacher training and so on. But um, it wasn't until lockdown, actually, that's been my lockdown project, look, investigating the uh, where do the chakras come from? Where does this idea come from? And actually, there's quite a few different sources. Um, you've got the idea of adharas, which is foundations within the body. You've got the idea of lotuses. You've got the idea of oh, um, Kundalini, uh -huh. this serpent who represents the latent energy within the body. Uh, some some place uh, some schools um, place her it, at the in the abdomen. Some at the heart. Some at the root. So anyway, in this particular text, which is one which is character um, Sir Arthur Avalon. No, uh, yeah, he his real name was John. So John Woodruff, Woodruff, and he called himself Arthur Avalon. Anyway, he tracked it down. It wasn't easy, this text, um, which explains the seven chakras. And, and this, by this time, it had become consolidated into seven chakras. And that translation became the basis of all the New Age stuff there is. And everything that we see about equating um, emotions and states of mind with the different chakras, it's all there in the Chakra Nirupana. Well, interesting um, that all these all these different sources and the different depictions, but really very beautiful how you and, and I think, you know, for different learning styles, different people, there are different ways. So you can visualize the chakras, the red four petaled lotus at the root, which earths us, well, red, the color of the earth and the symbol being the, the square. So four square down to earth and our, our connection with our ancestors, our pedigree, etc. And then next up at the um, Svadhisthana in the pelvis, we have the orange six petaled lotus, which is about where we come from, our beginnings, um, the, the balance of male and female. It connects with our parents, our sexuality, our creativity, and it's balancing of opposites. It uh, is conjoining opposites. So it's a point where we can bring stuff together and 
ascend from there. So each of the chakras, they're, they're like, it's like a board game. I do a board game with my students, actually. They go, they go up, we have a whole room and um, they go up in pairs um, with dice and at each chakra, there's all these different challenges. There's sukha and dukkha cards. So sukha is ease and dukkha is um, unease or sorrow or discomfort, if you like. So anyway, all these challenges that they have to go up through. And this is, this is what it's like. And this is what life is like. Life was never easy. We live in um, a dualistic world. And actually yoga is about negotiating the dualism and finding that clear path in the center represented by the ascent of Kundalini. So that is, well, that's my philosophy, finding the balance between mm -hmm. the extremes. And so, and, so, and so you work your way up through the chakras to the cosmos. Now it's interesting what you said about they're saying that the locus of the consciousness is in the crown. We actually do have neurons all the way through our gut as well. So gut feeling, that's a phrase not without foundation. Mm -hmm. And of course, we are sensory creatures all the way through our bodies. And we actually dive from the toes upwards. So I always make people work their toes a lot. Um, in my classes because uh, we've got to keep our toes agile and just to say stay sensitive I don't know if you've seen that wonderful documentary um, my octopus teacher that's on Netflix at the moment anyway. I have to look that one up I have to look you that do. one up it's, it's I, have, I have seen and heard some uh, incredible and amazing things about octopi octopuses uh, the, the, by the way, I found out the plural of octopus is not octopi. It is octopuses. Um, uh -huh. But it's just, it's amazing. They don't have tentacles. They're arms. That's what they refer to them as. They're arms. I mean, of course, we don't know what the octopus really calls his, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, because we can't speak that language. But what's so fascinating to me, and, and you've, you've brought something up very interesting uh, that we'll touch upon here real quickly, and that is the whole aspect of nature, of the, not just the animal kingdom, but all of nature, the plants, the animals, the rocks, air, fire, water, wind, and so forth and so on. I have said this for years I'll ask you to continue to elaborate on it. Nature is our greatest teacher. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why the yogis would go to the forest. That was the beginning of yoga, if you like. They would go to the forest. And although in the beginning, yoga, you, you referred to the origin of the word yoga as um, yog or yug or yuj in archaic Sanskrit. That's what we find in the Vedas. In the beginning, it was referring to meditation. It wasn't the Hatha yoga that we recognize today. Although I feel, well, they must have been able to sit in order to meditate. And to sit, one would have to keep the body reasonably healthy. I don't know what they're doing in the forest. But anyway, yes, observing nature, listening to the wind experiencing the elements all of the elements of course that's another origin of the chakras um so they're all so all the chakras are associated well not all earth water fire air space up to the throat and then we get to the um center of the head the anya chakra and then we're going beyond beyond the um elements and then when we get to the crown, that's yeah. our I've also read the book Joy's Way, where I found out that there are the seven main chakras from root to crown, but then there are minor chakras all over the body, mm. especially at the joints. Mm. And I, it was just fascinating to read about <laughs> Uh, yeah. these different energy centers that exist, not just up the center of the human body, but out the extremities as well. Yes. And that we have, we are energy beings. And I remember a documentary I saw where they were trying to determine 
they were trying to find the essence or the soul of a person. And one of the ways they were doing this was they would follow someone who was, let's just say terminal. Mm. And uh, they would have them on a scale and they would weigh them prior to their passing. Mm. And the, they, the person lost, I don't know, maybe a quarter to a, I don't even think it was much more than a quarter of a pound, but somehow, some way there was a small loss of weight, which to the, the documentarians and the people doing the tests it signified that that essence that left the body had mm. some substance. certain amount of substance or weight to it. Mm. And I thought that was rather fascinating. That is but, fascinating, yes. Where but at the, at the same mm. time, mm. Uh, and I have challenged when I, I was work, I used to work for a Christian radio station back in the 80s, early 90s. Mm. And whenever they would want to use science to verify, to justify their faith as the one and only, I would say, you can't do that. Your, your philosophy, philosophy is either faith-based or it's not. If you use science to justify it, it's no longer faith-based. That's a very interesting point. And the other aspect of it too is, as one of my guests 30 some odd years ago said, as he researched all of this, he found, and Christianity in particular, but I would have to say most all of the, the faiths, the philosophies around the world, most of them, not all, they are, it's an inner experience, not an outer. Yeah. And that's what yoga tries to do it's trying to get what the energies flowing yeah. trying to get them balanced and allow you to um better move through this material dualistic world mm. without being pulled swayed back and forth by you know the winds of duality shall we say is yeah. would that be a fair statement I think that's a great statement, yes. Yeah, and yoga is about self-realization, about knowing yourself and finding the best way to negotiate. So, you know, that's why there's so many different styles of yoga, why there's so many different religions, so many different forms of faith. We'll all have a predisposition to one or the Of course, it does help to be brought up in a particular faith, which is, you know, like I said, no problem with Christianity. It's yeah. just I feel that um, all, you know, all all um, religions are an expression of some uh, an inner, almost indescribable experience. But knowing oneself, and as yeah, you said it, negotiating your way through this the world of duality and finding balance, because uh, however much the the sea tosses the boat from side to side, navigating through it, that's that's all we can do. That's what I love about Eastern astrology, Vedic astrology. Uh, my mm -hmm. dear friend, David Hawthorne uh, of astroview.com talks, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I actually put this analogy to him and he said, yeah, that's just about right. I said, it sounds to me the way you've described it, David, that um, you are laying out a map, okay? Mm -hmm. And you're laying out a map and showing the individual what the, they may run into along the roadway from point A to point B. Mm. And it's up to them as to whether or not they prepare for those various conditions. For example, I want to go, let's say, to Washington, D.C., Washington State. And I've gotta, I'm going to have to go up through the central, you know, uh, central California, maybe past San Francisco. Well, according to my Vedic chart, it says that uh, I may experience very uh, uh, precipitous uh, um, uh, uh, periods on my journey through that particular part of my trip. So now it's up to me to uh, either uh, make sure I take a raincoat and an umbrella or what have you and be prepared or not. It's my choice. But I've been told that, for example, my wife had, had this experience. She was told 
that she would have what's called a death-like experience in July of 2001. In July of 2001, she was diagnosed with cancer. Now, she's been free free and clear of it ever since. She went through the surgery, the chemo, and so forth. But that is a death-like experience. So what do you do? Well, you can choose to prepare or not. It's, an, it's all up to you. And choices are what this program's about too, uh, Wendy. We want to give people choices and knowledge of those choices. So let me ask you in regards to yoga. And I go, again, we talked about navigating this dualistic world uh, in, in a more balanced way. Um, but I have come to the realization that this is less a dualistic world and more, and this is just my observation, this is just the way things are. They're neither good nor bad, right or wrong, light or dark, even though we have yeah. daylight and darkness. Uh, and I get that. But they're all cycles. It's just the way things are, just like the way the universe is moving. Even as we speak, supernovas novas are exploding, even as we speak. And meteors and comets are crashing and smashing and new worlds are being built. It's just the way that it is. There's no judgment there. So isn't that kind of what we're trying to work towards is moving through our day-to-day without judgment? I think so. There are two main underlying philosophical um, uh, visions, if you like, for yoga. One is that that of Samkhya, which is, um, well, the idea is there's Prakriti, and that's everything in the material universe, everything you've been describing from um, the tossing waves on the ocean to the supernovas and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And then our, the, uh, the aim in, in Samkhya Yoga is actually, actually to detach oneself from the, the lures and charms of this mm-hmm. uh, manifest world and to realize Purusha, which is the divine in us. And it's up to each each one of us, according to this philosophy, to detach ourselves from Prakriti and each of us to ascend in our own individual Purusha, if you like. I always think of that as little parachutes. We're all going off in our little parachutes. And then the, <laughs> other, uh, <laughs> the other main philosophy is that of um, Vedanta, um, Advaita Vedanta, so non-dualism, just says everything is one, just as the salt is dissolved in the water and you can't separate the salt from the water, all is one. And it's that unifying vision, which is also the underlying um, theme of Tantra, which, so you've got your, your vertical view, that's um, Samkhya, right, we've got to get out of this place, um, if it's the last thing we ever do, or it's okay, go with it, you know, suffer the slings and arrows because it's all one. You can't harm me, you can't kill me because my spirit is eternal. Actually, the Bhagavad Gita is very good at um, at embracing all the philosophies. Anyway, uh, it's it's going to be up to us, but I, I, I like, personally, I, I, quite, I kind of like the Vedantic view. I, I, I do too. I, by the way, my metaphysical primer, that which I started with on my search at the age of 17 was autobiography of a yogi, where I learned a lot about all of these different aspects that we've been talking about on this program. And of course it's Mm. expanded. Uh, Self-realization fellowship is a place I used to attend in Phoenix. I have Mm. since come to find uh, two other branches of the same philosophy, Uh, uh, self-inquiry life fellowship. We have a a uh, uh, swami here in Montecito, I believe it is, or on the hillside in a monastery here, uh, as well as another gentleman uh, who has a place up in Northern California called Ananda Village. Uh, Sri Kriyananda is a gentleman who has passed, but he was at the time the last living teaching disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda. And mm. I, I had a great opportunity of speaking with him and interviewing him a couple of times. Uh, fascinating gentleman. We've been to Ananda Village, my wife and I. Beautiful place, just gorgeous. And so, and it's like I keep getting drawn back to these people who have this particular philosophy 
every so often and I'll, I'll go off and we'll do all these interviews and I'll meet all kinds of other people. And then I'm brought back once again to uh, this wonderful philosophy. Uh, even for a short time, I was a Baha'i. I was a member of the Baha'i faith back mm. in the, uh, back in the um, uh, mid nineties. Uh, mm. Learned a lot through that as well. So it's just one of those things. And I think my favorite thing is kind of what you touched upon early in the program was one of Baha'u'llah's uh, statements that if you accept one of the messengers of God, you accept them all. If you reject one of the messengers of God, you reject them all. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very, that's to me very profound in that respect that we must learn to have respect for respect one another. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't like the word tolerance or tolerate. That that is not respect, honestly. No, you, you tolerate a crying baby because they can't help yeah, crying. Exactly. It's not, it's not the right word. No, it really isn't. Um, so I, I, and I have a great deal as as I said to you before we even started the interview. I wanted to get your name right. Uh, Tisdale is your last name. Wendy Tisdale is our guest here you on the program. Have, you have say the spelling. The spelling is the interesting thing because it's T E A S D I L Tisdale. Tisdale. And Tisdale. That's your name. And uh, I hope I've pronounced it correctly throughout the program uh, because I want to show <laughs> you that respect. Yes. And I wish more, I wish that the folks at Ellis Island at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century had shown the respect. To the people coming over to this country, but they didn't, and they were changing names left and right. Uh. And, and that's really unfortunate. But you know, that's when we start doing our own research and finding out what the real names of our ancestors were. And we can always take them. You know, you can change your name; it's not a big deal. Mm. But what we can't do is continue a program that has to come to an end at some point. But it can be continued at another. And I want to thank you so much for, for sharing this time with us, sharing mm-hmm. your ideas, philosophies about yoga, and encourage you people to go to your website, which is wendyteasdale.com. And again, you said that's T-E-A-S-D-I-L-L, uh, wendyteasdale.com. And go to the website, find out more. Maybe download some of those uh, little documents or pages of writings of, of Wendy's. Bendy Wendy, we'll call her. We thank you again for joining us. I do have three final questions for you, though. But before I ask those, I want to remind our listeners they can uh, listen to these programs uh, Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. on this station. And the podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations. We also encourage you, if you are of a mind to do so, if these programs resonate with you and you'd like to support us, be a part of what we're doing financially, we'd greatly appreciate it. We have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours. And we also ask you to participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. Spend that time within. I, it, it'll, it'll do you a world of good, even if it's just five minutes a day. Just take some time, get out in nature, get into a park somewhere where you can just watch the birds and listen. I, you know, I know there are parks that are in the middle of cities, so you're going to hear the traffic. I get that. But try to focus on what's going on right in front of you, right there. I have to tell you that Sarah, there are times when I'm sitting and I will see here in the city of Santa Barbara, I will see a little squirrels going across a parking lot. And I just watch them and chuckle going, ah, oh, they're on their, they're off on their little sojourn. And it's just a lot of fun. So I encourage you to do that. Well, my final three questions for you here on this program, Tell Me Your Story, are number one, who is Wendy Teasdale? Mm. Oh, just uh, just a spirit passing through. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? I would like everybody to uh, have the chance to experience inner freedom. And well, there's a, but that, 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 that'll do. And finally, what is your life's purpose? 
<laughs> I don't know, really, just to uh, keep breathing, I think. Keep breathing as long as I'm here and to do as, do, just to trans, keep transforming. Keep transforming. You saw transform, grief transformation. There's a lot of that. So, yeah, that's what we do breath by breath. Well, Wendy Teasdale, I thank you again so much for joining us on the program all the way from the UK. We've actually had many guests from the UK as well as Ireland and, and um, Switzerland. I think we had one woman from, yeah, we had a woman from Italy, uh, all the way from Italy on Zoom. And we thank you so much for sharing with us at, from your perspective, this very late hour. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I can go to sleep now. <laughs> Absolutely. You rest well. We thank you again, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, Richard. Many blessings. I'm Richard Dugan. Thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast podcast, love to love.